This is the Education Gadfly Show. It's been a long time, hasn't it? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> lest we go there. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Julia Louise Dreyfus of Education Reform, Alyssa Schwank. Hey, I'll take that one. Pretty good one. Pretty, pretty good, good one. one. Hey, talented, funny. Can can you believe that we, I have not watched Veep? I, I need to do that. That does so seem good. like something you would watch. Yeah. Is it's it, a it, it is a great show. show. Really funny. Can I get it on Netflix, do you think? Or do I have to pay it's for HBO some HBO yeah, It's HBO. It's you still? have to watch on HBO. Even the old ones, you think? Yep. Yeah. The only thing Possibly. that they've ever sold to is Amazon, and they only sold their bad shows like the new. Oh, man, it's killing me. Although I, I my, my my cable company wisely gave me two months free of HBO to try to get me hooked. Well, and then you should be able work. to watch it on demand, probably. Uh, ooh, interesting. Okay, I'll I'll look into doing that. Uh, by the way, the voice you hear is, of course, not uh, that was not Alyssa's. That was Brandon Wright, also helping us out to host today's show. Welcome, Brandon. Thank you. Uh, I didn't come up with a name for you. Uh, okay. You, you want to be the Brad, the Brad Pitt name. of education reform? Not really. Probably not. No, Probably not no I don't want to be connected uh, with a broken won, marriage. Who won best actor in a comedy? If she won best actress in a comedy? Jeffrey Tambor always wins. For what? Transparent. For Transparent. Is that a comedy though? I mean, it's we watched a few comedy. shows. I, I I think it should be a drama, but. It's probably easier to win. That might be a controversial thing to say. I, yeah, I think that's why they lobbied for it. But. Ah, yes, exactly. Oh, and let's also mention a little bit of baseball here. My Cardinals in a three-way race for the wild card My slot. Tigers have a chance, too. All right. It's Tigers exciting. have a chance. There's a lot of teams still in it. Okay, we'll talk more about that <laughs> next week. We'll be much closer to the end by then, right? Uh, or yes. we might be at the end, I guess. So, I think there's about two weeks left. Ooh, 10 games, something like that, 10 or 11 games. Yeah. Okay, uh, but hey, we're not here to talk baseball or pop culture entirely, uh, though we do amuse ourselves with that. Sorry, listeners. We are here to talk about <laughs> education reform. It is time for the education reform update. How do you guys like that new jingle? Huh? Pretty sweet. It's thank a really you, good thank jingle. You, producer Audrey. I've been lobbying that for that for months. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, or people around here actually do what I ask them to do. It, it, you know, <laughs> I, now I know how Checker felt all those years. Uh huh. So, speaking of Checker, we are going to talk about his article this week, Leading the Education Gadfly on special education, responding to a uh, quite an expose in the Houston Chronicle. It appears that Texas has been putting a cap on the number of kids who can get special education services, which is a big no-no. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's start digging into this. I mean, Lalissa, you were a teacher. Brandon, yep. you were trained as an attorney. Uh, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> this gets into legal stuff. Uh, yeah. Here's the debate, Alyssa. You know, as Checker explains in his piece, uh, it's not okay to artificially cap the number of kids mm-hmm. going into special ed. On the other hand, it's not so great Uh, to do what some other states have done, which is to label close to 20% of the kids as special ed. Uh, I mean, here's this this huge moral dilemma. I mean, there's some kids who clearly have disabilities and need special services, but there's a whole lot of kids uh, in in the sort of learning disability range or emotional disturbances range or, you know, other impairments range that it's a little questionable about whether they have uh, you know, a federally protected disability uh, or not. Yeah, I mean, it's very complicated. It's very nuanced. Um, I would add a caveat that it's not okay to have 20% of the kids being labeled as special education if they are not 
in need of that label, which I think is a nuance that needs to be teased out a little bit more. Hold on, hold on. So are you saying it is conceivable that in a state, okay, an entire state, you could find one in five kids actually uh, having a disability that would qualify? I think special education and learning disabilities are both overreported and underreported. And it's important as an education system to be giving all kids the education that they need. Yeah. Now, see, now, Brandon, here's here's where things get tricky, right? Is is that uh, for a long time, even equity advocates, equity in terms of mm-hmm. caring about poor and minority kids, for example, have said, look, uh, you've got these places where, you know, kids get this label as special ed. Mm-hmm. They get extra resources. Oftentimes these kids are white and affluent, you know, and they may actually have fewer educational needs than uh, poor and minority kids who who may not have a disability, but are grown up in poverty and facing huge stress at mm-hmm. home and are, you know, maybe uh, suffered from lead poisoning or I mean, who knows what else? I mean, that that we are in systematically favoring a certain class of kids and they may not actually be the neediest kids. Yeah, I think thinking about this from a state level is sort of a mistake, right? You're questioning whether it's possible for a state to have a 20% rate. I don't really care whether it's possible. What we should be talking about more is sort of a local or even school level. And certainly in a given school, one in five is possible. Mm -hmm. And also in a given school, um, one in 20 is possible, right? I think a better approach is to find some sort of medical community consensus about some sort of normal range. And if something Mm -hmm. falls outside of it Mm -hmm. at a local level, then investigate, like make sure that things are being overreported or underreported. But this, these generalities about, about rates across large groups of people just sort of muddies the issue unnecessarily. uh, I think But when you look at these rates, Brandon, I mean, to have some big States, that have twice as many kids getting identified as other states. When the states have similar demographics, you just say, look, that cannot be that there just so happens to be so many more kids with disabilities in in state A than state B. It's got to be that they have very different ways of saying yes or no to whether kids qualify. Look, it is a lot like our health system. Uh, we have It's a third payer system, right? Uh, you know, people have insurance now uh, more so uh, under Obamacare. You have insurance. You're, you know, you have a major catastrophic event in your life. You're not paying for, you know, your hospital stay. The insurance company is. Mm -hmm. Somebody in that system has to be the bad guy to say what's allowed, what's not allowed, what they're going to pay for, what they're not going to pay for. We have the same thing in special ed, right? I mean, parents, understandably, want to get as many services as they can for their kids uh, and they're not paying for it. You know, so somebody's going to have to be in the situation to say, No. Now, there's been some argument that in the past, school districts haven't had a strong enough incentive to say no because they get funding from the feds or from the states in order to provide these services. Now, maybe it pays for enough, maybe it doesn't. On the other hand, uh, you know, if they're paying out of their own pocket, they might have an incentive to say no too often. So it's just, it's a, it's a moral quandary. Look, we're going to see the same thing. There's now all this push to make sure that we treat mental health services the same as, as, physical health services in our healthcare system. Well, how do you distinguish, you know, between somebody who clearly has, you know, chronic depression and needs uh, regular therapy and medication and all the rest and somebody who just enjoys going to see their therapist once a week and wants their insurance company to pay for it? I mean, these are difficult questions and it's the same kind of thing there. It's all, you know, how do you make these distinctions and who gets to decide? I mean, I think in special education, um, one of the things that we can and should do a better job of, and I think Checker points out a lot of ways in which the system is broken and idea, which is the law that 
authorizes and oversees a lot of special education services in the country is clearly in need of an upgrade and renewal. One of the way things that we can and should focus on more is implementation and just the simple fact of ensuring whether or not if a kid is supposed to be getting a service or is has an IEP to receive a service. I've taught in public schools, like whether or not they receive the service is very much up for grabs and it's okay. a very bureaucratic yes. process. Right. That's and something yes. that I think we but, should be focused on. But this issue is about who gets the IEP in the Who gets the place. IEP, yeah. And, and how, right, and, and you know, how tough, how stringent uh, that process should or should not be. And again, again, right, we do not want to keep kids from getting services who need services. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just don't want to overdo it in the other direction as well, because we live in a world of finite resources. And if special ed kids get, you know, extra therapy services and tutoring and this and that, it means less money for, you know, poor and minority kids to get other stuff they might need. Mm -hmm. Okay. Again, of course, there are poor and minority kids who are also special ed. I'm just saying, you know, that, uh, that, that this is the the dilemma we've got. We've got this pie right now. It's about $650 billion and we have debates about how to slice up that pie. And and there's a real question that Texas may have gone overboard in keeping the special ed slice too small, uh, but states like Massachusetts have surely gone too far in the other direction of of allowing their, their special ed slice to be too big. So I think an important sort of conclusion and maybe even a closing to our talk. In, you're saying you're, you're done. You just <laughs> uh, in the lead essay for Gadfly, Checker makes a big point at the end about how people are so afraid to talk about this, yeah. and that's one of the big changes that we, as non-experts, can say that those who are experts, those who know this stuff, policymakers, state, city people, everything, they should they should know that they need to look at this closely. They should find a way to balance all of the components you just talked about, find a way to do this cost effectively, um, find a way to serve as many kids as possible, personalize the learning for as many kids as possible, but don't avoid this issue. Don't just Mm. let it sit and be afraid to touch it. Yeah. Do something about yeah, it. Because our political system is so good these days at actually solving tough problems. All right. Well, hey. No, it's not, it's but really somebody has to solve it, right? And yeah. they're the people who ultimately make the decisions. Yeah. All right. Hey, hey, speak very, for yourself. I'm going to call myself an expert, Brandon. I don't know about you. Come on. I'm not oh, an expert on special you're on education. Sh- you're on the show. Let, you're on the Gadfly show. <laughs> you count. Hey, but that is all the time we've got. So thanks. Uh, uh, indeed, a tough conversation, but an important one to have. That's all the time we have for Ed Reform Update. Now it is time for everybody's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. We were just talking about special education. You know, you taught at the high school level. I did. And I mean, did, did you have kids with IEPs? I did not. Yeah. I think they were put in a different class. I was going to say, I, I think that, you know, this is not unusual that there are some high school teachers that just don't interact with the special yes, ed system as much, uh, whereas every elementary teacher is yeah, going to. That's exactly right. Yeah. Nope. No, no interaction there. And that yeah. probably wasn't a good thing, right? I mean, yeah. I would think we, we've got some mixed results on that but um but yeah there I, I knew the class i'd walk by the class where most of the kids with aps yeah. were sitting yeah um so wonder if that's it. changed since then yeah it's been good. a long time hasn't it what you got for us we got a new study out by nber that examines whether student coaching can be implemented just as effectively through technology as it can be in person 
We're not talking sports coaching here. No, we are talking about helping students foster motivation, effort, good study habits, Mm. and time management skills. We're for those things. Yes, like the things that you need when you're a freshman or sophomore in college. Okay. Okay. So this is a college study. So in other words, can that be done just as effectively through technology like an automatic text, like Mm -hmm. an automated text, Mm -hmm. or an email, as it can be done through real people? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we know, remember, um, we know from the research of Carolyn Hoxby and others, for instance, that the role of counselors and steering some low-income students into more selective universities can Mm -hmm. be really important, right? And we know there's loads of good research on the impact of tutoring one-on-one and what Mm -hmm. that can do. But this stuff is expensive, right? So this study used a sample of over 4,000 undergraduate students from a large Canadian university who registered Mm. for first-year economics classes in the fall of 2015. Mm-hmm. Okay, they randomly assigned them into a control group mm-hmm. and then three different treatment interventions. Okay, one is a one time online exercise where they explored their values and their goals for the current year, what they want to do with their future, how they intend to meet their goals for their future and that first or second year in college. Okay, so this is like mm-hmm. you figure out what your goal is through this exercise. Number two was a text messaging campaign that provides them with mostly automated automated text messages, gives them advice about academics, motivates mm-hmm. them to do their best. Okay. Was it like 2 a.m. text that said, go to your bed, you big dummy. You got I class tomorrow. Think, but there was stuff like, you know, good luck on your, you know, finding the best classes for your whatever. It was automated. Okay. Okay. Um, contact was not initiated with individual students. That's important. Um, and nor were emails presented as coming from a real person. All right. It was okay. from this program called you at U of T, which is the university. So you'd get these okay. text messages from you at U of T. Okay. okay. Um, and number three was the personal coaching service in which students are matched with upper year undergraduates coaches who are encouraged to initiate contact and build relationships with students over time, mm-hmm. both in person and through text. The control group, by the way, filled out this background survey that everybody had to fill out. Um, and they were given a personality text and got mailed the results. I think that was just like a throw you a bone for filling out the survey, right? Okay. So they didn't get anything. All right. Um, finally, the results, okay? And I think this is kind of what we would guess, mm-hmm. right? Um, they found no effect from either the online exercise or the text messaging campaign across the general population or for student subgroups. Mm-hmm. Yet there were large and significant effects from coaching after one year. Mm-hmm. which increased average course grades by five percentage points and a 0.35 standard deviation increase in GPA, which is pretty mm-hmm. good. It's a solid increase. Um, these impacts strengthened, by the way, over the semesters of the year. So they kept mm-hmm. seeing them bump up. Coach students also failed fewer credits and earned more credits mm-hmm. on average. Okay. So all good stuff. Yep. Uh, the in-person coaches had small groups to coach because then I started digging in like, okay, how many kids did they have? Okay. They had no more than five students mm-hmm. um, since the component was randomly administered to a subset of the group that did the online exercise. So they mm-hmm. didn't, it wasn't a huge group, maybe like 25 or 30 mm-hmm. students who got the coaching. Um, so in other words, that meant that those kids really benefited, right? From the kids, they didn't have a ton mm-hmm. of kids to coach. They spent about seven hours total per week in coaching. Well, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get to dig into the cost and they said, you know, these kids really, they work for dirt. Let's just be honest. They're college mm-hmm. kids. Uh, they estimated that it cost about 13000 to service just that small group that mm-hmm. got the coaching. The online cost was negligible mm-hmm. and the text messaging was $1,200 that covered all 1,500 students. 
right? And it didn't really work, but it was pretty cheap, $1,200 to do this campaign. And so then the bottom line is now they're trying to think of like, you know, this is, how do we make this more affordable? Mm -hmm. Um, Because kids need this kind of stuff, like helping them out, right? And especially Mm -hmm. these transitions into college, ninth graders need it. We talk about ninth grade orientation Mm -hmm. in high school. And so now they're playing around with, can we do a virtual coach? which is kind of like a real person because they think that the element that they could isolate mm-hmm. that was helping was sort of the um, reaching out to them proactively and also trying to build rapport. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. So, I mean, I was intrigued by it because I just, again, I think that we keep seeing how the touch, right? That just on mm-hmm. in-person kind of touch really can help kids. And we mm-hmm. just don't know how to b- bring that to scale. So win one for the people. Take that, robots. <laughs> you can beat us in chess, but not this. Aren't you a huge fan of driverless cars, Mike? Oh, well, yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> but, you know, we got to, I got to stand up for the human beings of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And you think about, you know, the guidance, I mean, I think about when I was teaching, the guidance counselor who's completely inundated, mm-hmm. who has in a large mm-hmm. high school, maybe, I don't know, 200 kids, you know, assigned to her mm-hmm. in the graduating class that she's supposed to be like steering in the mm-hmm. right direction. So, um, I don't know. I think that we'd really need to figure out what's kind of like a middle of the road approach mm-hmm. uh, to reaching kids who just don't have the mentors that they need at home mm-hmm. or otherwise. No, mm-hmm. I like it. I think it's good. Did they get into any, was it a four-year university or like a two-year university? Uh, like student demographics was, about how a, maybe self-motivated? four-year. Like the University of Toronto, maybe? I mean, yeah, you did slip there with the U of T, right? Canadian university. <laughs> yeah. On multiple campuses. Okay. <laughs> or, yes. or McGill, who knows? Right, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But I think too, I think that would be it something to keep in mind is that particularly in community colleges, like the supports might be that are needed might be different than the ones that are needed at like a four-year university too. So that would be interesting true. for me to find out more about. I remember going, you guys remember I went to freshman orientation as a freshman and undergrad right. uh, and yes. they led you around with, I don't know, a hundred other little freshmen. Ours um, had a toga party at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. <laughs> really? Wasn't, yes. <laughs> but I mean, I just think back and you don't know anybody, right? Like, it's kind of nice to have an undergrad take you under their wing mm-hmm. and shelter you and kind of tell you, like, they were, it was funny, they were showing, like, what the nature of the communication mm-hmm. was, and it ranged from everything, like, how do I stay on campus when everybody's leaving for, you know, Christmas break and mm-hmm. I need to stay here, and, you know, like, yeah. you just need some help. Yeah. It's a scary world to navigate when you first get to college. <laughs> when you're 18. Good yeah. stuff. Good stuff. And probably things we could use at the uh, <laughs> high school level as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. All right. Okay. Well, that is all the time we've got for the show this week. Until next week. I'm Alyssa Schwenk. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C., For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.